and 17. It's a beautiful spring day here in Brooklyn, New Hampshire, and uh, I happened to have run into Betty Hall, and I talked her into coming with the assistance of her daughter, Mary Batchelor, coming to the Brookline Historical Society today so we can have a couple of hours and uh, talk to Betty about, uh, well, I hate to say it, but Brookline long ago. <laughs> uh, so, Betty, I know that you have been spoken to, and I hope you continue to be spoken to to gather the library which is inside your head, uh, because we don't want to lose that. But my focus today is going to tend to be about uh, life in Brookline, uh, of course your role in it, but the primary focus will be life in Brookline as opposed to the life of Betty Hall, so you forgive me. Yes, Okay. absolutely. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, let's start at the beginning. Uh, when did you first have occasion to come to this town? Well, my grandmother was born in the house where I lived uh, here, and I bought her house from her. When did you first come to town, though? Well, when I was a brand new baby, I was born in Germany. And, and my father and mother were over there after World War One, and he was the head of a military occupation district. And he visited his parents in Brookline, and you came along. I came along with my parents to Brookline. It was uh, her mother that had the link, though, to Brookline. What? It was your mother that had the link and to my Brookline. My mother's father was dying. He was a minister of the Everyday Church in Boston and founder of the Franklin Square House in Boston. Was that George Perrin? That was George Perrin. And he lived in Brookline? He never lived here, but he came often. Where did he stay? At, at my house, the house where his wife was born. My great-grandmother was his second wife and his stepmother to my mother, but she was she was practically like own mother, because she never knew her own mother. What was uh, uh, Franklin Perrin? Did I have that right? No, Did I say George that? Perrin George Perrin. And his wife was Florence Hobart oh, thank Perrin. You. So and that's the Hobart connection to Brookline. Okay. It's through my mother's stepmother. <laughs> When did you not live in Brookline, but first visit Brookline? When you were a little baby, when you said? I was, when he was dying, they just they made arrangements for my parents to come home from Europe, and they brought me, and he baptized for me for him to baptize me. Right. So that, so I know that it was when I was nine months old that he baptized me in that house in Brookline. And, and he came because, I mean, we came because he was dying. And he died shortly thereafter. So that was about 1921 or 22? Yes. What is your first memory in Brookline? Well, I was trying to think if I could have really remembered the first because 
I sort of always felt like it was summer home to us. And we came all, often, and when I, long before I was old enough to realize what my relationship to Brookline might become. And, but I, I had lots of cousins, and my grandmother was one of seven children. Did you have cousins in Brookline? Absolutely. Who were they? Uh, well, there was Celia Holberg, Grace Holberg, uh, and there were four girls, uh, Celia, Grace, Helen Holberg, and uh, what was the other one? We'll think of it. <laughs> Pearl. No, Pearl's mother. Dottie's great. Oh, no. Uh, I had lots of them. And I don't know. They weren't You may want them all at some yeah. point. And I, I'm going to do some reconstruction of, and digging out the names of all of them. I have a wonderful book that I should show you sometime that was written by one of my cousins who was a and an editor of the Saturday Evening Post, Arlie Cook. Oh, we have and one in the build. In and the, and I, do you have her book? Oh, I, I thought it was a he. It, it, well, the book was, was he, called When I Before I'm Cold. Yes, we, we do have that. I'll have, to, right. I'll have to take a look at it again. I'm not so concerned about the names of the girls as I am about what you did with them and what it was right. like. Right. Well, Celia lived across the street from my grandmother. My grandmother did a lot of her business in the what's now the Stonehouse Press Building. That was an old blacksmith shop. It was, it was a George Hulbert's business. And he built the house and the blacksmith shop and the Cooper shop that was down below. I think we've talked about that before, and you, but anyway, we had this sort of little complex up at the top of the hill with cousins and children that, of the Hobart family, and they were very active in the community. He led the, he had a cornet band, and my grandmother, when she was about four years old, could play the cornet. Was that in town, this band? It, it was, it's in town, but it went to parades and things all over the area. There was a lot of interchange in the, between the communities. They, there were a lot of Hobarts in Pepperell, and my, my grandparents used to take a canoe and go down to Pepperell every Sunday for dinner. And then they'd send a, a carriage down and bring the canoe back and the, and the, again. So they did it all, and they had dances and parties and all kinds of things. And my mother used to go, come up from Boston. I'm sort of getting a lot of this backwards and around. It's not chronological, but you don't care. <laughs> but there was, it, as far as the flavor of Brooklyn was concerned, it was a very social town, and they had lots of parades and and uh, 
activities with surrounding towns. And there was dances and hoedowns and hayrides and all those wonderful things, and my mother loved them all. What was your mother's name? Mary Perrin. Actually, Mary Metcalf Perrin was her middle name. That was her maiden name, and then when she was married... Now, Meg Metcalf was Bar never... was a friend of my grandfather's that was the middle name. Yeah, it was her maiden name, is what I said. Her maiden name was Mary Perrin. What did uh, her husband do for a living? My mother? Your, your mother's... Uh, your mother's husband was in the military, but what was his job after the military? He eventually went on to to academia, and he was at MIT, and then he eventually became dean of engineering at Columbia, and uh, and then he, during World War Two. He was under, an undersecretary of the Navy. Remarkable. When you were in high school, did you come to Brookline? Yes. I went to high school in New York City, and I went to the demonstration high school of Columbia Teachers College. And I, I, and I remember... He, Meeting uh, John, what was his name, head of the Columbia Teachers, very famous educator, and we were steeped in all of the education tradition. Let me pull you to Brookline. So when you but came when to I Brookline, came to Brookline, they let me teach at the little. Okay, wait a minute. Too fast school. for me. Are you saying? When, when you she came was like to the 10 or something, 10 years old. She used to come when up I was in the 10 summer. Years old, She'd get done in school. I couldn't early. wait to get out of school in, in New York so I could come up and teach school in Brooklyn because the teacher let me take some of the classes. She had tw uh, uh, six grades in one room. Where was the building? Milford Street? It was uh, the one up there on Milford used to have the and bell I, tower and I can remember the, the kids came to school and bare feet and it was but I loved it I just couldn't wait to come up and get to get go down to help teach school what what is our year approximately when you're doing this well I was 10 years old 1931 so, yeah and it was probably the depths of the depression mm -hmm. Eric Virgilio did an interview with me a couple of days ago, and he was much interested in my depression stories. And I did quite a few with him, and I may do some more with him and you, because I, if I give a little more thought to it. Uh, but the, it's one of the interesting things was my grandmother was, by that time, a widow, and in business for herself in Brookline, Massachusetts, and she moved her business from Brookline, Massachusetts, up to Brookline, New Hampshire, and she became the only employer in Brookline, New Hampshire, during the Depression, and she, so she
she helped them through the depression that that way. What was her business? Religious gifts, and I. I think I have already given to maybe Nancy Reingold some of the uh, memorabilia of that religious gift business, but she supported herself for 50 years after my grandfather died. 15 years? 50. Five zero years? Yes, she lived to be 98, and I, so I gotta beat that. Where was the business? Religious gifts. She no, where? Was in the back of the barn, okay. and in Stonehouse Press building, okay. the, the blacksmith shop was the business. For so you're saying 18 Old Milford Road, just for the record, right? Yes. Okay. Um, you've spoken of coming up and teaching when you were about 10 years old. Um, in high school, did you do that also? No. Did you come to Brookline while you were in high school? I. I started going to the lake, uh, to our lake cottage, which is a whole other story, and it's coming to the front of my existence right now. Okay. But uh, we, my father bought a cottage up at the lake after the hurricane blew our cottage down on the south shore of Long Island. So I started going summers a lot to. South Shore of Long Island and Lake Lerner, Wasaukee. So I split the summers between those and coming to Brookline. When did you and have I occasion? I come less to often to Brookline as I got older. When did you have occasion to come to Brookline, though? Oh, whenever there were family parties. Okay, any significant stays uh, a little bit later in your childhood, high school or college? You stopped coming for summers? I got stopped coming to stay for extended periods of time, but I always came for all holidays and uh, things that the family was doing. And we were very big, a big family. I can remember doing square dances out on the road in front of on Old Milford Road. We would do quadrilles and and. Who would Virginia call? Reels, right in the road. And who would provide the music? Oh, the music was provided by Llewellyn Powers and Celia Powers. So tell so us a little bit about them. That Celia was my was my grandmother's sister, and she, she was Celia Hobart that I mentioned earlier, and she married Llewellyn Powers. And I have a nice story about that too. So I'll interrupt and tell you that story. Llewellyn Powers lived in Hollis, and he was pretty crazy about Celia Powers. And he walked every night after he had done, done farming all day over to see her. And he walked home in the moonlight after afterwards at midnight and get up and farm again the next day. So they all. And he, he and he played the fiddle, and for 25 years he was the champion fiddler of New England. You probably have that story in some other place. And she, and Celia, my grandmother's sister, played the piano, and they had a grandson, Chappie, 
and you probably have heard a lot about Chappie in your course of it. And Chappie was my, my age, and Chappie and I grew up playing together in, in Brookline. And whenever I came, I, I would go along on the uh, to, to the dances when they were playing. And Chappie would have these ribald little songs that he sang. And, Everybody got such a kick out of him. Where would the dances be held in Brooklyn? Well, some of them used to be held right here in in, in the this building, I think. And you mean town and hall? This, and the town hall had lots of dances and parties and things like that that went on. But. Another not, not story I remember. Before you leave Llewellyn Powers, didn't he live at the top of Steam Mill Hill Road? Yeah, right, right, right across the street. And my son Lee discovered the fire in the house. Tell us about that. And that was a really a, a very traumatic experience for all of us. Uh, Harry Powers was Llewellyn's son, and he apparently had left some paint rags. He was a, paint, a house painter, and they spontaneously combusted. And when when they when my son Lee came running across the street to, to to us and tell us that the house was on fire, Sid ran across the street and he found the garden hose. Uh, outside the the barn, and and he, he picked it up. There was no pressure, and he couldn't use it. And he watched that whole house go up. And, and if he had had any water in that garden hose, he could have put that fire out before it happened. But it was it was very traumatic, and it was very traumatic for Lee. How old was Lee? He was about six years old. Therefore, the year was approximately what? 1950? Oh, he was born uh, in 45, we right? Lee was born yeah, in 45. Yeah, probably in the early so 1950s. 1951, maybe. All right, uh, let's fast forward. And you feel free to share any stories that come to mind along the way. Yeah. But I want you to go forward in your life uh, to the next stage when you had any contact with Brookline other than holidays? Well, I, in, in, in the early years, Celia and Llewellyn and uh, Grace and her husband Frank Cook Dottie Cook's father and mother had a a double wedding at the church, and I don't know if you've got that in your records, but they, uh, 50 years later, they had a double golden wedding anniversary, and I can remember well coming up with, to help my grandmother plan this double golden wedding anniversary which was publicized in all of the newspapers, including the Boston Herald. And it was a big event in the, in the town, this double golden wedding anniversary. Got lots of publicity. 
and my grandmother did it, did it, did it, uh, just made a great big festival of it. They had food and they had decorate. They decorated practically the whole town, and it was it was, and I, I think I found some pictures that I also gave to. Yes, we have some wonderful pictures, panoramic picture inside um, Daniel's Academy, and all the seats are full. There must have been a hundred or more townspeople there. It's a beautiful photograph, the one we have. It's right in the case over here, mm. um, because there's so many distinct and clear faces, and you can see all of these it's people. It's wonderful. Are. Well, I was there. You were. Well. I'm sorry, uh, that we're, after this is over, if we remember, I'll pull out the picture and maybe we can find you. Yes. Yeah. So, so. But I helped with all the arrangements and it was, a, everybody in town was helping, so it was a real town-wide celebration of these two couples. Mary, does it have the year on it? 1935. April 9th, right around now. April 9th. I graduated from high school in 1938. Okay, that's helpful. So, All right. so, so that t ties into answering your question. So this double ceremony was a celebration of 50 years of marriage by two sisters and their husbands. That's right. Okay. And you said Harry. Is that also Chappie Powers? Harry was Chappie Power's father. Oh, excuse me. There were Harry and Gertrude was his mother. Okay. And then Chappie was the only child okay, of you. that marriage. And he was very precocious. How so? Well, he, he sang all these little ribald songs when they go out to, to play, play the, and call the square dances and stuff like that. And, and and people got really a big big kick out of it, and he was very popular with almost everybody. He was very hail fellow well met, and he was interested in politics too. So he got involved in a lot of the political things that went on. Did Chappie, otherwise known as Harry, have children? Chappie had two children, he had two daughters, and one of them is Melanie Gerard, who lives up on the Old Milford Road. He lived up on the Old Milford Road, Chappie? Well, they, Harry and Gertrude had a house up there, and Harry was a house painter, and so, but they weren't able to he wasn't able to make a sufficient living to keep the house, and he had to sell the house, and he moved back down to live across the street from us. So, in Llewellyn's place? Pardon? In Llewellyn's place? Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. And Celia worked for my grandmother. When my grandmother moved back up here, she Harry, continued to carry on that gift shop business until she was 95 years old. And she made her own living and she put her kids through school and did the whole thing. And she was an extraordinary woman, Florence's parent. And you'll come, 
Florence Hulbert Perrin was my grandmother. And she was my mother's stepmother. In college, did you have a vacation to come to Brookline? I used to come for the family parties and things like that. I don't re I was trying to recall coming often. The war was coming on at that point, and I was working in a war plant in New York. So I, right directly after college, I went to work for the Western Electric Company in New York. But I was, the war was actually started by then. When did you graduate from college? In 1943. When did you marry Sid? In 1944. Uh -huh. And uh, for some period of time, you and Sid had your family in Concord, New Hampshire. Yes, my husband's family were very, were all, my father and my husband's father were roommates at MIT, and they belonged to the same fraternity. And a lot of the people who are at this Marymount place up at the Saki were uh, fraternity brothers also. So we had that very close connection with Sid's family. And my mother and Sid's mother were best friends. So they, that I would, when I would come up here, in, the, in those later years, I would go up to Concord, I would go to Wasaki, and I would come to Brookline. So I would be spread around and I didn't stay as long in Brookline as I did when I was, when my mother and father were at MIT and, and living in Brookline, Massachusetts. But you settled in this town. When was that? Well, Sid, when he got out of the service, he was he went to MIT. He was a graduate, and he uh, he got a job with Textron in Manchester. He was a, and he did he designed machines for them. And he traveled all over the country putting these machines he designed into garment factories. And there was a garment, was called a steam air machine. I think I gave a lot of pictures of how manufacturing in the steam air machine to the Historical Society, too. And, and you put, on, put the garment to be pressed over this other garment that could inflate inside and press the garment from the inside out. It was a very unique machine. But I'm wondering how you came to Brookline. I think I know the well, story, but... Yeah, well, we were living up in Concord with his family after we got out of the service, and we were looking around for a place to live. It was near enough to Manchester for him to, to work there. And we came down to Brookline to visit my grandmother for a party. And she said, I don't know why I don't sell my house to you. And I said, 
that would be wonderful. So that's how it happened. When was it? The same one. What year? 18, oh, oh, it was 1948. Do you remember what you paid for it? $9,000. And, uh, and we borrowed two extra thousand dollars to fix it up. It needed all kinds of work. And What did you have kid-wise at that point? How old? Yeah, how many children did you have when you came to town? I had two, and Ted, Ted was born while we lived here. We went, my brother-in-law was his sister's husband, was an obstetrician at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. So I went up there to have the, my babies. So I had two while I was in Concord, and then I had more after I had moved to Brooklyn. But I went to Mary Hitchcock for all of those. Did Sid keep driving to Manchester? He didn't like driving to Manchester, but he did it, and he found it was a lot better than when uh, U.S. Hoffman machinery put him on the road and he was traveling all over the country installing these machines he had designed to do the steam air stuff. So he, he finally got really, really sick of the, of the traveling. And I, I, I have one travel story to say that uh, I used to take him to the train in Nashua, and he would get on the night train and, and, and sleep all night going down to New York. And then and he would be traveling all week, and then on Friday he would come back and I would go over and meet him and bring him back to Brooklyn. So he had weekends in Brooklyn for about three years while he was working for U.S. Hoffman. And that he hated it even more than running back and forth to Manchester. So that's when he, we decided to have our own business. And then he left Hoffman, but he made covers for Hoffman for years. That was our main staple business. And the, the tote bags and all those others were just things that came along afterwards. And we did a lot of contract work of industrial. When did you start hall manufacturing? 1951. And where was it when it first started? And where in town? We we started up over Hall store. No, it was Stonehouse Press first, right? Across the street. Yeah, I guess, yes, we took the, the old blacksmith shop and we fixed it up. And then when we got extra we didn't have enough space. We rented space at Overhaul store. At this period of time, who who was running uh, the store? Right now, nobody's running the store. It was, it's been called it was the two Alfie Hall. Alfie Hall. No, it was Forrest and Fred. Well, Forrest and Fred. I'll tell you some more about the store later. Forrest and Fred were ran the store for years. What, what kind of store was it? What did they sell? What? They sold everything. It was a general store. Meat and, and food and 
clothing and everything. Did you patronize it? Oh, definitely, but they were so frugal that they wouldn't turn the lights on. And you'd go into the store building, it had these big pillars on it, and, and very imposing looking. It was like a dark cave inside. And it was so scary that I was scared to death to go in. But they had the best penny candy anywhere. <laughs> so I was... That's a new story. <laughs> you haven't heard that? I didn't hear about it being so dark. And oh, and Fred, both Fred and, and uh, Forrest had problems with their noses. Big, bulbous noses, and they were very red. And they looked like hobgoblins, really, they did. To a little and girl? Then, to a little girl, and it scared me after that. <laughs> but Alfie was Forrest's son, and in the early years when I first started housekeeping in Brookline, he was, in, he was running the store, okay. and he would... He would uh, come at the drop of a hat and deliver anything that I ordered. I'd pick up the phone and I'd say, I, I need some salt. Up would come Forrest in his, and okay. deliver the salt. And once a week, he would come to the house and he would come into my kitchen and he'd go right through all the shelves in the kitchen to see what I was running out of. And he'd make a list. And he'd show me the list, and, and I'd say, okay. And he'd put it on the cuff and go running down and get all that stuff there. And then he'd come up and put it on the shelf for me. That would, And he didn't do it just for me. He did it for everybody. It was expected that Eddie Whitcomb, who ran the other store, would do the same thing, except that he was short-handed and he couldn't do it so easily. Horace and Fred were back up to Alfie, and so they took care of a lot of things. It made it possible for Alfie to be the lead competitor. And But there were two stores, and you could get anything delivered at any time. They would let, let, let people buy on credit, and through the Depression, it almost killed them. Well, I, that's wonderful stuff. Um, we left off when you came to town. Uh, running the store at that point was Alfie? Alfie. Yeah. And was Whit the Whitcomb store still in business? Oh, yes. And Eddie had branched out to the ice cream stuff at an up on the highway. And, and he did a lot. He, he made a good living, but he didn't make it so much from the store. The competition from Halls was too much. When did the... They, they were no relation to us. Yes. Uh, when did uh, you get involved in the church? Oh, right from the start. And there were two churches. And, then, and the first Sunday I was... I had gone to Sunday school at the Church, church of Christ uh, when I was growing up, and my mother was on the Sunday school rolls. One of the 
one of the plots down in the church now has my mother and my uncle as listed as Sunday school pupils in different classes. And so so I and I but when when I went to to church the, the first Sunday that I moved in we moved into Brookline, there were five people there and a traveling minister who came uh, once a week and no, and nothing else. The, the church had all kinds of dishes in China and all kinds of things for a full church program and nothing was happening in that. So I went to the other church, the Methodist church, the next Sunday and they had a young student from Austin University who was, who lived in the parish, preached in, in, in the Methodist church, church in return for being able to live in the parsonage of the, which was uh, the other half of Carl Clifford's house at the bottom of the hill behind the store. Nobody even knew that there was a parsonage there. This no, was a Methodist parsonage? It was a Methodist parsonage. And this boy, this young man and his beautiful bride lived there. Well, he was a very attractive young man, and so the young people in town were attracted to this quite dynamic couple. So most everybody was going to the Methodist church, and the Congregational church was limited to just a few old people. But I had been connected to the Congregational church in Concord, New Hampshire before I moved down. And so I, I thought, isn't this ridiculous? Why should there be two churches when one church would be ample, even with the, the young people that this dynamic young pastor was uh, attracting, they, they weren't filling the, the Methodist church either. So I, I went to the Congregational Conference Minister who I had known in Concord. I had been very active in the Concord church before I came down. And I got to, and we lived right across the street from the Congregational Conference. So I had gotten to know the people in, in, in the conference. So I went to the conference minister. He had been a, a conference minister for the Congregational Conference for like 30 or 40 years. And he was a wonderful man. And I, I, I told him the sad story of these two non-functional churches and that I thought they ought to get together and he says you're exactly right and and he said what are you going to do about it and so he said I'll give you any help you need to get those two churches to get together so he he, he subsidized a a um, summer church school and they he put in two very dynamic young people to help organize this school and then I went to the Methodist church people and I said 
can you work with us to do this so that we have the two both churches working together to put on this subsidized church school which is going to be, be a big deal held where and we were going to i was proposing to use both church buildings and then and he said so this young man, other dynamic young minister said, yes, that was a wonderful idea. And they, the Congregational Conference agreed to pay him too. So they, we had two of the dynamic. So then I went to the Catholic Church and I talked to Mary Fessenden. You may have heard of Mary. She was a wonderful woman. She was Orwell Senior's wife. And Orville was the big mucky muck in this town at that time, and he was a terror. He was, he was a dictator, and he wanted to. He he gave me more trouble than anybody else in Brooklyn, more even than Webster Burgess. What did he give you a hard time about? Oh, he didn't want to do it, cooperate with anything. So Mary said, "We're going to do it." And she joined, and and we, so we had all of the young people, and there were no activities going on in town for young people. And so we, we put on this fantastic church program for the summer. And we, and Dr., I'm trying to think of the name of the conference minister, but he said, I'll put, I will send you students from Andover Newton to help with your program at the Congregational Church and help you get these two churches together. So with the help of Mary Fessenden especially, we succeeded in doing all of the work to get these two polities to put the, come together and make one church. And at first, we had to go through a whole federal church set up, and we had to agree to have a minister from alternate between one church and the other. But the Methodists paid their paid their own ministers, so the two two parties didn't mix well, and we were always having problems. With it. But we had some absolutely amazing people come and uh, on the two, both churches wanted to make it work and eventually it, it, the Methodist Church found it very difficult to find ministers that would fit in with us and then go on to another church. They placed their ministers themselves. But we had some wonderful Methodist ministers. And I don't know if you remember, uh, oh gosh, I can't think of his name. I can, we can look it up at some point. But we, we had, I, I thought he was, we had, we had him, and we also had a doctor, one of the faculty professors at Andover Newton, who lived here, Dr. Rawlinson. And so we, we had an extraordinary experience with these 
people that in two conferences competed to, to supply us with, and they helped us. But when we didn't, the money wasn't forthcoming anymore, the Methodists found it too hard to, to, to deal with doing it, and it dropped out off and became just a congregational church. You mean the Methodist and church closed? They, they never actually pulled out, but they pulled back, and they didn't supply their minister when it was their turn. And so, and I don't remember all of the details of that, but I was moderator of the Congregational Church, and Tom Arrow was moderator at one time. And we did some incredible things with those ministers, especially through the... The 1950s and 1960s. At the end of 1960, the Christian churches in New Hampshire were in deep trouble, and they still are in deep trouble. And only the evangelicals are having much success, if, if any. I think it's starting to change. I don't know, but. This little church now, the congregational church, is struggling. The Methodist church is gone. Let me shift a little bit because I'm very curious about, and I may have to change the tape at some point. Yes, I'm going to change the tape now, actually. One moment, please. But, wait a second. Okay, we're over on the next side of the tape. And I was intrigued by something you said, Betty, and I want to pursue that subject. I'm wondering who the players were in town. You mentioned Orville Fessenden. And who were the other powers in town? Alton Jensen was very active. Alton Jensen. Alton. And, and Charlie Farwell. And Alton Jensen. Charlotte was Alton Jensen's daughter, and he was married to. She was married to. Porter. George. George. George Quayle. Right.